Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot Theological Seminary, Biola University. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics, Dean of the Faculty, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we have a guest who you're probably familiar with if you followed a a ton of cultural social issues in particular related to the LGBTQ question. You probably recognize the name Preston Sprinkle. He's written a wonderful book called People to be Loved. And what we most appreciate about this book is that Preston brings a real commitment to scripture and theology, but also to loving people. And you've said over and over again, Preston, this is not an issue. It's about people. So thanks first for your ministry, but also for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me on, you guys. You bet. Well, we've got a lot of questions, and we're going to really focus on the transgender question. But let me just start with your personal story. What has motivated you really to care about LGBT people? Uh, that's a great place to start. You know, I, I kind of fell into it as a, a scholar doing scholarly research. You know, I was just uh, interested in the topic because I had a lot of students at the time that were asking about it. So I decided, hey, why don't I write a book about, you know, what the Bible says about homosexuality was the focus of that time. And, you know, I just thought I'd kind of look up a few verses and, you know, spin out a quick book and move on to something that was more complicated. (laughs) Classic classic (laughs) professor (laughs) mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me how that that worked out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, here I am, you know, six years later. But, um, yeah, you know, I found out a couple things. Number one, that, you know, just on an academic, biblical, theological, ethical, psychological, historical level, like... Um, you know, it's a lot more complicated than I thought. Now, I think, you know, when it comes to the definition of marriage, God's desire for sexual expression, I think those answers are, are you know, clear in Scripture. But there's all kinds of other complex threads that are woven throughout the conversation that I realize that, man, I, I, I need to really dig down deep and, and unearth, you know, a lot of material here. And um, So it's been, academically, it's been a great journey, but... Um, on a more personal side, in the process, early on, I, I, I got to know a lot of LGBT people. I just really wanted to humanize the conversation, and man, that really wrecked me. It, 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 it didn't change what I believed, or what I believed. Like, my ethics weren't transformed, but they were shaped, you know. There's a difference between what we believe and how we, and how we believe, you know, and sometimes how we believe something our tone, our posture, and the language we use is sometimes even more important than what we believe. And I found out that, man, this conversation, people who maybe have, quote-unquote, you know, the right answer on these questions, ethically, they go about it sometimes in a way that really dehumanizes people. And, and uh, you know, I forget to know a lot of LGBT people. They, be, they were no longer just LGBT people. They were just my friends. They were, you know, Tom and Leslie and Matt. And, and, and to see the, the pain that they've gone through, you know, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally by other Christians and the way they've handled the conversation. It really, it really affected me. So now when I do talk about the ethics, the theology, the Bible, you know, the biblical passages that are, this discussion is, you know, is germane to this discussion, I just, I can't do so without, you know, humanizing it and making sure we understand that we're talking about real people here. Preston, I think this is what we appreciate so much about uh, both your writing on this and the speaking that you do on this. Our listeners may not be aware. You have a Ph.D. in New Testament, uh, but you have a pastor's heart about this. Yeah. Um, And I think that that desire to humanize the discussion is so positive. Um, But I I think our listeners shouldn't 
I should also be aware that you know you have you know the the, the academic and the theological street cred uh, in this to a. Uh, you know, to make a real contribution to the, the discussion of what the Bible teaches, but it's in the context of you know loving these these real people that have real issues and struggles in their lives mm-hmm. that you're also helping us be in touch with. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that. Uh, I see it in your own writings, too, Scott, and you, Sean, and and you know, yeah. For me, growing up, I was always I always wanted to be either a pastoral theologian or a theological pastor. Like I just never really liked the sometimes harsh distinction between either you're an academic or you love people. I'm like, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to study the Bible, hopefully I should drive me to love people more. If not, then something's wrong. So I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, unfortunately, it is, it is more rare sometimes. Than I so, Preston, tell us exactly what is meant by the term transgender. Yeah, good, good question. Sometimes people don't even begin there. They just kind of use the term without defining it. So transgender, it's it's uh, the most important thing to understand is it's a large umbrella term. Um, at its base, it simply means that somebody who identifies as transgender typically experiences some sort of incongruence between their, what I'll call their gender identity and their biological sex, or if I can say it in more layperson's terms, their internal sense of who they are and their you know external, their biological sex, their chromosomes, their genitalia, whatever. And uh, but that can range all the way from somebody who simply doesn't fit into certain stereotypes of what it means to be masculine or feminine, all the way to somebody who experiences perhaps a severe psychological condition called gender dysphoria, which itself you know there's a spectrum of uh, what that looks like, all the way from you know some just ongoing sense of feeling out of your skin that you don't resonate with your body all the way to like you know some people experience severe gender dysphoria where they're gosh i mean it's just um they'll look at themselves in a mirror and just literally throw up like they're so just revulsed revulsed it is now if you listen to my podcast i tend to make up words on the fly they're revolted by the thought of them in their whatever you know gendered body that they're, they're living in so um, so yeah, it's a wide range of people, and, and the key too is uh, some people who aren't transgender they they think that transgender means you've had a, like a sex change or sex reassignment surgery. And according to one statistic, only three percent of people who identify as transgender um, are pursuing some sort of medical you know transitioning. So it's just it's a really really broad term, which is why I tell people if you meet somebody who identifies as transgender, um, you get to know them, ask them what they mean by that before you assume that you think you know what they mean. So let me follow up on that just for clarity's sake. Uh, what What's the difference between someone who is transgender and someone who has what's called intersex? Yeah, that's a great question. Great question. Um, the trans, so I'm going to give you a crude kind of uh, example, but it's going to be, I, I, it's PG-13, but it's, it's Actually, it's not. It's fine. <laughs> this is this comes from people who are transgender trying to explain it to other people, um, uh, you know, that that aren't experiencing these things. So, transgender is what's going on between your ears. Intersex is what's going on between your legs. Now, that's a very simplistic, crude, but the point is, uh, transgender. Somebody who identifies as transgender, there's nothing biologically like there's nothing in their sexual anatomy that's any different than anybody else who is either male or female. They, they have male genitalia or female genitalia. 
Um, they have, you know, their their um, hormone levels are just like, you know, or at least in the ballpark of another person who's male or female. Whereas intersex um, typically refers to some condition where there's some sort of, if I can say, atypicality. Now, that isn't a word, but they have atypical features in their sexual anatomy. So this isn't just something going on in, in, in their mind or their self-identity or their internal sense of self. It is an objective, atypical condition. Now, it could be all the way to, you know, some... In, in fact, a lot of intersex conditions leave no ambiguity in determining one's biological sex. This is the mistake some people make. They think intersex means neither male, male nor female, or intersex means... Gosh, we can't even tell if the person is male or female. I would say, not me, but medically, 99% of intersex conditions leave no ambiguity in terms of a biological sex. It may be, for instance, um, Kleinfelter syndrome, where somebody has, you know, an extra, uh, I believe, a Y chromosome. It, it, somebody with Kleinfelters may go their entire life without even realizing they have Kleinfelters because the, the symptoms may be like some people who have Kleinfelters are infertile or they may have. Uh, different hormone levels where they may gather uh, fat um, in different areas than your typical uh, male would. Like, for instance, they may gather fat around the hips rather than the belly or something like that. Well, that's not a... There's no ambiguity whether that person is male or female. They're male, but um, they they do have a condition that's classified as intersex. So, um, yeah, so all that to say, intersex, some sort of atypical features in the actual biological sex of the person, Transgender has to do with one's self-identity or something going on in in their mind. Okay, that I think that's a really helpful distinction. Culturally, I think there, are, I think it's clear that there are lots of misconceptions about what it means to be transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would you say among the Christian community that you've that you've found? What are some of the main misconceptions that sure. that you've seen out there among the Christian community about what it means to be transgender? You know, the first one would be just an overwhelming, um, and I don't mean this demeaning, like in a derogatory way, but there's just a ton of ignorance. Ignorance is just simply like they just don't know. They hear the term, and and they just have all these assumptions about what it is. I think that the first misconception is that transgender means somebody has had a sex change, Um, which, again, that's a very small percentage of people who actually pursue medical intervention. Um, And I also think maybe the... um, uh, the, the lack of awareness that transgender, as I said earlier, is a really broad umbrella term. So, so I have a one friend of mine who experiences gender dysphoria, so so some sort of incongruence between their biological sex and how they feel on the inside, but they still identify with their biological sex. This person happens to be a biological male, and they say, no, I'm, I identify as a biological male, I experience this dysphoria, but that person... Um, you say, they, they say, I, I'm okay self-identifying as trans. I just, when I say trans, I just mean like, it's, it's like a, a synonym for the dysphoria that I feel. But they're not claiming to actually be a sex or gender that's different from their biological sex. It's simply a, a term to describe their experience, not their sort of ontological existence or identity. Whereas other people will say, no, I'm transgender. Sure, my biology says I'm male, but I, they would say, I actually believe I'm female. So that's more of a strong, you know, sense of transgender. So, um, again, I think just going back, you know, as, as one of my friends says, if, if you've met one transgender person, you've met 
one transgender person, so you've got to really get to know exactly what the person means by the term because it is so flexible and, and fluid. Preston, I want to ask you for a biblical view of how we should think about transgender, but first let me ask you one other distinction and just see what you make of this. Some people make a distinction between transgender as a psychological condition that individuals experience and transgenderism, which would be more of a political agenda tied to, say, bathroom bills or education. Do you accept this distinction? How do do you process when you hear that? I think that's a very helpful distinction. Obviously, there's going to be overlap so that the individual person who has, you know, a psychological condition may also um, be more of an activist and pushing for a wider acceptance of a particular ideology. Um, So there's going to be some overlap there. But man, yeah, I, you know, I often tell people there is what I would consider a very unhelpful, unchristian, and I would say even destructive ideology that is promoted and pushed by, I would, I mean, I don't have the stats on it, but I would say a a minority, a loud minority of people who would identify as transgender or even straight allies who are, or cisgender allies who are, you know, also trying to promote a transgender ideology. So, So that absolutely exists, and it is, especially in public schools, especially in certain states like California and even, I mean, I live in Idaho and even here, my kids tell me what they're being taught. I'm like, you're going to be kidding me. Um, so there is that, that absolutely that exists, this sort of political, cultural, ideological push. But man, I, I just, I do think it's helpful to realize that as we're sort of resisting graciously, but, but doing so resisting um, what I would consider a really unhelpful, unchristian, destructive ideology, we still need to be very sensitive to the 14-year-old kid in our church in church who's maybe wrestling with suicidal thoughts because they don't fit some masculine stereotype that they feel like they have to fit into. So they don't have, they're not trying to push this. They may be victims of an ideology, and maybe that's confusing them even more, but man, there's, there's a pastoral moment here where we need to be super sensitive to um, the real people who are suffering from what would be a real condition or even just confusion about what it means to be male or female. Um, and, and yet at the same time, we, we need to resist an ideology that I think is infiltrated, you know, uh, uh, both society and, and our church culture um, that I think is incredibly unhelpful and is confusing a lot of people. That's a wonderful balance between the cultural issues and the pastoral approach Christians are called to take. So let's take a step back. Give us some biblical principles or teachings that help us understand uh, the issue of gender that would relate to transgender. Good, good. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about here. The, the, the main thing I want to say is the Bible does present humanity as what I would call a sexual binary. There are male and there are female, males and females. Um, of course, there's going to be, uh, if you have any sort of view of the fall, or even if you like the term fall, the fall, you know, I mean, there's some sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, as one writer puts it, you know. Um, and you can't, any, any human is going to say, yeah, things are kind of messy, you know, people are born with different you know, abnormalities, and there's, you know, um, people are born with missing limbs and uh, uh, desires that are out of whack, and so, yes, things aren't, just because you, you're born doesn't mean everything, you know, uh, that you're born with is, is exactly the way God sort of intended to be. Um, so, uh, 
Oh, I got I got off track a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, the Bible presents humanity in terms of male and female. There is there is no in between. Whenever humanity is mentioned, it's male and female. You do have, you know, um, the closest example we'd have of somebody that maybe doesn't fit that binary would be there's a few references to eunuchs. There's two references in the New Testament, several in the Old Testament. The most famous is Jesus' reference in, in Matthew 18.12, where he talks about people who are born eunuchs, or made eunuchs, or people who make themselves eunuchs. Now, eunuch is a really broad term. Lots of different kinds of eunuchs in the ancient world. The one common denominator is that eunuchs were infertile men. Now, I stress men, they were not viewed as some other biological sex. Now, they were most, oftentimes they were considered less masculine by a very masculine culture, you know, where if you weren't married and had lots of kids, then you were considered less masculine, but you were still considered a biological male. So when Jesus speaks positively of eunuchs and, you know, we, you know, the, the gospel even... Has, except eunuchs, you know, and he's not doing away with the sexual binary. He's just saying people who have been othered for various reasons are accepted in God's kingdom. If they, you know, as Isaiah 56 says, if they live faithfully and, and follow God and everything. So um, other than that, there's really, there's, there's, there's no real positive example of somebody who sort of lives in between the male or female or, or crosses gender boundaries. And that's another thing, whenever... Um, whenever the Bible does mention people who, who present, them, present themselves or identify as a sex that's different than their biological sex, it's always condemned. Like in Deuteronomy 20 verse, uh, 22, verse 5, where cross-dressing is condemned, you have, um, you have uh, Romans 1, the, the prohibitions regarding same-sex relationships are really about crossing gender boundaries, and there's other passages where the distinction between male and female is really woven into the fabric of what the biblical writers are talking about. So as far as the Bible's concerned, you're born male, you're born female, and yet, of course, through the fall, maybe there would be some people who have a, a mental disconnect or some incongruence between their psychological sort of identity and their biological sex, and that, that's where the pastoral moment needs to come in. You know, how, how do we walk with somebody who is experiencing that particular uh, effect of the fall? So, Preston, if, that, if that's true about what the Bible teaches, and I, and I think that's pretty clear from Genesis 1 and 2 and about yeah. – I, I like, like the point you make that um, there's, there's, there aren't really categories in Scripture for the kind of gender fluidity that is so popular in the culture today. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do pastorally with mm-hmm. you know, a high school or a college student who is wrestling with gender dysphoria and just feels mm-hmm. – you know, just feels out of place in their body. Yeah. So that, that is a million-dollar question, and I would say, you know, this discussion is really new to society and very new to the Church, so we're, we're really... There's no, like, proven right answer uh, to that that has been widely accepted and tested. We're, we're at the cusp of figuring that out. I would say this. Um, statistically, according to all of the scientific studies, uh, there's eleven main ones that I've that I've seen that trace gender dysphoria in children into adulthood. Um, anywhere from sixty to eighty-five percent of children who experience some level of cross-gender behavior, cross-gender identity, or, or um, um, interests, mannerisms—you know, whatever—sixty to eighty-five percent end up identifying with the biological sex 
by the time they're 25. In fact, we now know from science, I mean, you, you can, hopefully you can consider pictures more you in mind, but, you know, our brains aren't actually fully developed until we're 25, you know, and so we're, we're searching for identity, we're searching for who we are, we're, you know, there's a lot of fluidity uh, from both pre-adolescent and adolescent stage. So, um, number one, pastoral moment, if you're dealing with somebody who is young, um, you know, pre-pubescent or in puberty or even teenage, in the teenage stage, um, some of this stuff will often work itself out. Um, so I think not freaking out, like if, if, if a child or even teenager is exhibiting some cross-gender behavior, um, if you jump in and say, no, you know, and like really intervene too strongly, that can have a counter effect, or encouraging it, saying, oh, well, you must be transgender. That's also scientifically unhealthy. I'm not, I'm not even saying from a Christian perspective, I'm saying that can be confusing just from a sheer psychological perspective. That would be one. Another thing that I've seen that is often helpful is, um, you know, again, oftentimes the dysphoria or the disconnect or the incongruence can be um, shaped by, by, by cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. And this is where I, uh, there's a really good psychologist, Leonard Sachs. Leonard Sachs has written a lot on this. His recent book called Why Gender Matters. He talks about these, um, these, you know, uh, the pressures of these stereotypes and how exposed. So, if, for instance, you have a teenager who just doesn't, a teenage boy who, who doesn't, isn't interested in sports. Maybe they're interested in, I don't know, art or music or poetry, and and they're kind of you know, they're kind of being treated by other people as being less masculine, less of a boy, and that could create a lot of confusion. What Leonard Sachs says, and I think he's right, is if you can expose that person to different types of, of boys um, that don't all just flow from the stereotypes, that can actually help them realize that um, there's different ways of being masculine, different ways of being a boy, and just because you don't match up to these cultural stereotypes doesn't mean that you're transgender or that you're, you know, uh, a gender different from your biological sex. So uh, breaking down stereotypes, I, I think, has been incredibly helpful for a lot of people. You know, other than that, I, you know, um, I, just, I don't want to simplify things, but having a really strong community where people are accepting you, where they're not putting pressure on you to, to be a certain kind of person, where you're, where you're cared for, where you listen to, where you can we can wrestle out loud. I just talked to a, a mother the other day who's actually a psychology professor. She has a, a son in her, in her teenage years who wrestles with dysphoria. And they came right up, both of them, and talked to me so openly about this. It was, it was fascinating. And, uh, you know, he said, man, I, I feel like I could talk to my mom about anything. If I'm feeling really out of my skin, like I could just go to my mom. Like I've got friends I can talk with. And I don't have to wrestle alone. I don't have to hide my closet, <laughs> pun intended, you know. And, and try to do this by myself. I have a community I can wrestle with out loud. So, um, yeah, those would be some just kind of basic things. I will say transitioning medically, from a Christian perspective, I, I can't justify that. But even from, a, even from a scientific perspective, it has not been shown to sort of solve all the problems. People still experience depression, anxiety, um, they still can experience gender dysphoria five, ten years after they've medically transitioned, and there's a growing number of people who are 
now detransitioning because they're like, ah, it just didn't, it, it didn't work like I thought it would work. Now, I'm not saying in every case that, that happens, but um, it is not. That is not the sort of magic answer to gender dysphoria, even from a, even from a secular perspective. Let me, uh, Preston, let me follow up on that just briefly. Uh, one, one of the counselors, authors that is, is popular in, uh, in a lot of this discussion has suggested that um, when dealing with gender dysphoria, uh, he recommends as, as the, the least invasive means possible to alleviate the distress. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- th- things like cross-dressing. Um, yeah. I mean, he would. I think he would consider yeah. an, an acceptable option. Uh, I think he he would. He has the same cautions you do about uh, you know sex changes. Um, but I, I don't. I don't think he rules those out. Um, mm-hmm. But takes. I think would take maybe some different measures, some different applications uh, than mm-hmm. some of what you've suggested so far. What What's your take on those? Yeah, you know, and I, I know that you're talking about. He's a, he's a friend of mine. He's talked about this, and uh, I, I'm not. I'm not working that on that. And, and you know, he's he's more of an expert than I am, and he's got a lot more. Um, case studies that he's drawing on, but for me, just uh, I mean, let, let's, take, for, let's take dress, for example. I mean, thankfully, we live in a culture where, gosh, there's a lot of sort of um, <laughs> androgynous type of clothing or even hairstyles. So, for instance, some of my uh, female friends who wrestle with gender dysphoria, they hate having long hair. They like having short hair. They like wearing jeans and not a dress. I'm like, well, that's fun. Is that cross-dressing? Well, no, those are... Yeah. Those are acceptable forms of expressing your femaleness. In that case, I would say that's, that's totally fine. But if you're saying, I'm going to cut my hair short and wear male clothes because I want to present myself or even internally identify as a male, I think that's when you're, you're crossing over a bit. And even if, I guess just from an ethical standpoint, even if psychologically you experience, for instance, less suffering and you feel more comfortable. Just from an ethical standpoint, minimizing suffering and elevating comfort, those are not biblical categories of sanctification. In fact, sanctification may and often does and should include lament, um, hope in redemption and the resurrection and suffering and you know, these things can cultivate a longing for Christ to return and, and holy living and, and even helping others to walk through this. So I don't, for me, from a sanctification standpoint, elevating comfort and minimizing suffering, those are not my, my priorities. And I don't say that flippantly. I don't, I don't, um, I, I, um, I, I can see the, the psychological attractiveness of that, but sort of letting somebody cross, like actually cross dress or present as the opposite sex or different sex, Perhaps, you know, if, if the dysphoria gets really bad, I, I just don't, from a, from an ethical standpoint, I just don't see that that's the direction we should be heading in terms of becoming more like, more like Christ, if that makes sense. But I, again, I, I'm, I say this, you know, with utmost respect for people that have, have worked, you know, extensively in, in, the, in this area. That does make sense in terms of the content and the spirit in which you say it. So let me ask you a final question, which is kind of the elephant in the room. Should Christians use the proper pronoun for someone who is transgender? What principles or guidance would you give us even approaching that 
issue. Oh yeah, I'm looking through this a lot right now. I would, I would say, um, use the pronouns of somebody's choice. I, w- I would say that. If well, let me let me put it the other way, if you want to immediately cut off a relationship with somebody, which is ending all opportunity to embody and share Jesus with the person, um, then then don't use the pronouns they want you to use. Like it, it is. It is an immediate relational killer. Um, and you know what? You, you have an interesting passage in Acts 16 where, uh, where Paul refers to the gods of the Athenians. He remember he's preaching on Mars Hill, and he talks about, hey, you have this unknown god, and, and he's quoting these Greek pagan poets. And, and he, he actually uses pronouns to refer to gods that don't even exist. <laughs> it's almost like he talks in such a way that almost gives the impression that these fake gods actually exist. Like you worship that god and this god, and 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 the poet said talks about Zeus and he does this and he does that, and he, he's not affirming the existence of those gods when he, when he uses the pronouns. He's simply meeting them where they're at um, to, to build a bridge. And I think that's that's the direction we should head pastorally. Let's meet somebody where they're at. Um, so that we can build a relationship to hopefully help walk with them toward where God wants them to be. And, and I know for people that don't struggle with these things, it's like, ah, oh, it's just a stupid pronoun, what does it matter? Look, for people that do wrestle with gender dysphoria or identify as transgender, these, these are huge, huge. Like, I, I cannot tell you how invested um, they are in name change and pronoun change and, you know, and again, you don't need to agree with it. It's, just, it's an act of just stepping into their world, stepping into their shoes, and meeting them where they're at and building a relationship. And if you refuse to use a pronoun, it's going to make that almost almost impossible. So, yeah, I you know the pushback's going to be, well, if a biological male wants to be called she, that's I'm lying if I say you know she because that's not who they really are. And then I, and I okay, logically I can see that point, but I just think that pastorally, it's just, it's not so simple. I think you can use that as a way of meeting them where they're at. It doesn't mean you're necessarily lying about it. Any more than Paul was lying when he referred to these, you know, unknown gods or these other gods that they're worshiping as seemingly real entities, even though he, he knows they're not. Thanks for your perspective on this. I know some of our audience is there right with you. Some might be a little hesitant, but that's okay. I think there's yeah. areas where Christians need to thoughtfully, graciously, biblically and pastorally look at this issue, look at different perspectives, and just with their conscience before the Lord, proceed as they think God wants them to. And I think you'd agree with me, this is one of those areas where, you know, there's a little bit of room uh, for yes. Christians to respond differently. Yes, yes, absolutely. I will add one more thing. I don't, you know, in, I know in Canada and, and other places, there's a movement for compelled speech where it might actually be criminalized or punished if you don't use the pronouns of someone's choice. I, I think that, that that's a very wrong way to go. I, I don't think it should be sort of legally mandated. I, I think that's an infringement on free speech. Great perspective. Thanks for bringing that in. Preston, there are dozens more questions we would love to ask <laughs> you, but that's why I'm going to send our listeners to your website, PrestonSprinkle.com. You've got a blog, you come and speak, you have a podcast, your book, People to Be Loved, which is wonderful. Thanks again for your balance of scriptural truth, but also a pastoral heart. Thanks for coming on, Preston. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Preston Sprinkle, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.